Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. They can head on to their class. And for the rest of us, uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it and open up to Luke chapter 3. Uh, We're going to be in Luke 3 today, looking at verses 21 and 22. And uh, we're continuing on in our series in Luke. Um, So if you're new with us today, uh, we preach through books of the Bible. Um, That's what we do because we want to hear from God's Word, not just um, opinions or ideologies from um, men who sit around and don't do anything. And so uh, we want to see what God's Word is doing and what God's Word is teaching us and what God has already thought of that is best suited for what we need to hear and live and trust in our day and age. And so we open up His Word um, to learn. And so that's exactly what we're doing today. Uh, The topic for us today is in baptism. So we've been talking about baptism for a few weeks now, um, except today it directly talks about the baptism of Jesus and its purpose. And uh, as I was kind of thinking about that, one of my neighbors uh, washes his car almost every other day, it seems like. And, and as I always kind of drive by and see him washing his car, my thought is always, why are you cleaning an already clean car? Um, because of how often he washes it. And it actually made me think about that when looking at Jesus' baptism is, why are we cleaning something that's already clean? Like, why is Jesus getting baptized? Um, and I hope to answer that question for you with the help of the Holy Spirit today. Um, so, Let's pray one more time, and, um, and we'll dive into this. Father, again, thank you so much uh, for your goodness to us, and thank you so much uh, that it's in your will to communicate to us through your word. And so we ask, Lord, that we know that the Holy Spirit has come to guide us in understanding the truth, and we pray for that in this moment now, that as we open up your word and as we read it and as we teach on it and as we receive it, uh, that the Holy Spirit transforms our heart and our minds to be able to know you more, to be able to treasure you greater, um, and to be able to see the goodness of your work that you've done through your son, Jesus Christ. So it's in this that we pray. Amen. All right, Luke 3, 21 and 22, uh, looking at the baptism of Jesus. Let's read it. It says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in the bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, With you, I am well pleased. Now, looking at these two verses, and specifically looking at the baptism of Jesus, just at first glance, Luke seems to kind of skim through it really quickly. As far as just, and they were all baptized, and then also Jesus was baptized. And then he moves on to kind of the interaction going on with the Trinity that we'll look at here in a minute. But he kind of skips over it really quickly and doesn't provide us a ton of detail as to why Jesus is being baptized. Uh, which in some ways is unlike Luke, because we know so far to this point, Luke is a person of detail. He likes to give detail. He likes history. He likes events. He likes getting eyewitness testimonies and hearing from the people what all was going on, because again, he wants to provide assurance of faith uh, for the readers of this. And so as he is writing this, it was also important to kind of look at some of the parallel passages that go hand in hand with This one. So we know that Luke, again, is a gospel that's written to record all of the events of Jesus' life, his his death, his resurrection, all the events around the gospel, why they're called the gospels. 
Matthew does the same thing. Mark does the same thing. And the Apostle John does the same thing. And so Matthew and John also include uh, this event, the baptism of Jesus. And they provide even for us a few more details around this specific narrative. And so looking at Matthew 3, one of the things that we wanted to do in this um, is, again, answer this question. Like, is there purpose to the baptism of Jesus? And Matthew 3, paralleling this, this is what it says in verse um, 13 and 14 of Matthew 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need, no, or I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So again, when you're thinking of baptism and what we've explained in baptism over the last few weeks is that it is for um, or an illustration for the removal of sin. It's it's you need to come to the end of yourself. You need to die to yourself. You need to be buried and then you need to be raised to walk in a new life. You need to have a new identity, a new transformation, a new self. And so if we're thinking in that mind frame, John, who is doing the baptizing, knowing what he's doing to prepare the way to preach a a, a message of repentance, he's thinking, when Jesus is coming to me, why are you coming to me, Jesus? You don't need repentance. You're sinless. You've never done anything wrong. You don't need to come to the, quote-unquote, end of yourself and have a new version of yourself. You, you, You are perfect. You are righteous. I need to be baptized by you, and yet you're coming to be baptized by me. And so at this point, even John is a little confused as to what's going on. And so then Jesus responds to him, which I think is so good here. Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consents to baptize him. And so it's interesting here that Jesus, the only explanation he kind of gives John at this moment is that this needs to happen to fulfill all righteousness. So we need to do a little bit of digging to figure out what does he mean by fulfill all righteousness by the baptism of Jesus. Well, there are several reasons why it was fitting for John to baptize Jesus at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Because again, Jesus is about to embark on his great work. Um, It's appropriate that he would be recognized publicly by his forerunner. First and foremost, it's because we know that Isaiah 40 verse 3, being prophesied by Isaiah, is talking about the voice that's going to come, that's crying out in the wilderness, the preparation for the Messiah, that the Messiah is coming. There's a way in which he proclaims that. There's a way in which he kind of gives his stamp of approval that this is the one, and it's going to be via his presentation of Jesus. Now, one of the best ways to see this um, is actually in the role of a priest. And so the first thing to draw attention to is that the baptism of Jesus publicly presents Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice. It's him publicly being presented as the ultimate sacrifice. And so his baptism, it takes on an added dimension when we consider that John himself is actually from the tribe of Levi, that he's also a direct descendant of Aaron. And so these were considered the tribe of the priests. One of the roles of the priests every Passover is to literally present the sacrifices on behalf of the families to the Lord. So every family would find a lamb that's without spot or blemish, and they would bring them to the priest, and they would present them to the priest. 
And the priest would then take those lamb and then they would present them to the Lord. And then they would be sacrificed. And then God would take the blood from those, those lambs and then spread them over the families that are confessing their sins. And they would temporarily for that year have their sins be forgiven. So that was the act of the priest. So John, in this sense, is bringing Jesus before God and presenting him to the Lord as the sacrifice. This is going to be the sacrifice. One of the reasons why we know that is because the Apostle John, in his um, reading or accounting writing of this narrative, he says this in John 1, 29-31. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, and this is the Apostle John writing on behalf of John the Baptist and what John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So as Jesus, picture the scene, John's out in the wilderness baptizing people. Jesus is coming to John the Baptist to be baptized. And as John sees him, he's saying, this is the lamb that is being brought to me. And this lamb is going to be the lamb of God that actually takes away the sins of the world. He's presenting to him the ultimate sacrifice that once and for all is going to remove the sins, not just for their annual process of Passover and not just for one family, but for all families who believe in Jesus once and for all, past, present, and future, are being presented on behalf here for Jesus to be sacrificed in order for their sins to be removed. John calls again Jesus this Lamb of of God. And again, that's reference to the Old Testament and Old Covenant of this ritual. So this is what Jesus is being presented as, as he's being declared out to the people what this baptism is actually representing. That the lamb is going to come and be put to death. And that because that lamb is being slaughtered and put to death, which we know that in Isaiah 53, that the Messiah is going to be like a lamb that is um, silent before the shears, is going to be led to the slaughter. That's Jesus being pictured here. That's Jesus being presented in this, um, in this event, in this ceremony. So in this narrative, we see John acting as priest, bringing the lamb of God to present him before the Lord as a sacrifice on behalf of the people. Secondly, the baptism of Jesus shows that Jesus identifies with sinners. That he identifies with sinners, though he himself never sinned. And this is one that we got to do a little bit of work on, because if, when we think about the idea of identifying, or Jesus identifies with sinners, um, what do we mean by that? Like, What are we talking about when we say Jesus identifies with with sinners, because baptism in and of itself is a form of identification. It's a form of identification. It's a form of you saying that I belong to someone, that I belong to someone. And we talked about that over the last couple of weeks, that when we are baptized, it is our public declaration that we are claiming we belong to Jesus. We are uniting with Jesus. We identify with Jesus in his death, in his resurrection, in his burial. We belong to him. He is ours and we are his. So how then does Jesus identify with us when it comes to this idea? Well, identification, again, is proof of who you are. All right. Every single person in this room, you have an ID in your wallet. It's proof of your identification. When I was 16 years old and, and really dumb, um, I had an old Mustang that I actually ran from the police in. Uh, just, just one time, all right, one and done. 
uh, but ran from the police. And when they eventually caught me, which didn't take long, um, and pulled me over, that was what they asked. They said, we need to see your identification. And so I give them my identification. And now I'm in rural Tennessee, okay? Don't think like what you see like in videos where it's like on the interstate. This was in my mind more like Dukes of Hazard, okay? Like it's backwoods running from the cops. But uh, fortunately also being from rural Tennessee, identification sometimes works out in your benefit depending on uh, if you're an athlete in the small town uh, or if your dad uh, works as a firefighter as well, which were both of my cases. And so my identification allowed me to be forgiven in that moment and go with a warning. So um, identification matters in a lot of ways. And so because it tells someone else who you are and what you stand for. So Jesus being baptized is him identifying with us. And the best way to describe how Jesus identifies with us is what we see in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. There's a purpose behind Jesus identifying with us. He says this in verse 5. This is Paul speaking. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Though Jesus is sinless, he is publicly at his baptism declaring to be or to the people that he is like one of us. That he is fully man. And this is actually, as you've heard me talk at times, about the great exchange. Like we talk about the great exchange at the point when Jesus is on the cross and he's being sacrificed, that he becomes sin. All right, this is 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin so that you and I, who are sinners, can become righteous. Great exchange. Perfect becomes imperfect so that the imperfect can become perfect. Righteous becomes unrighteous so that those who are unrighteous become righteous. It's the great exchange. What we're seeing here at the baptism of Jesus is the beginning of this great exchange. We're seeing Jesus who God fully eternal is stepping into human history. And not only is he stepping into human history, but he's stepping into the incarnate. God becoming fully man so that he again, relates with us, identifies with us as humans to become the ultimate sacrifice and the ultimate death in our place, in our place. But he has to be fully like us in order to die on our behalf, okay? Like it has to be, if if the wages of our sin is death and we owe God death, there has to be a man die. There has to be a human die on our behalf. And this is the first proclamation where Jesus is doing this for us. His baptism is illustrating the identification of him from God becoming man and then having that man be buried or put to death, be buried, and then eventually raised back to life because the wrath of God is satisfied. So Jesus is now identifying with sinners. Though he's sinless, he is identifying with with sinners. He's proclaiming to the people around him, it is necessary for me to become you, to become you, in order to then bear all of your sins, to have God place all of those sins 
upon himself. Baptism is the end, or in the end, is ultimately an act of identification. Who you are and to whom do you belong. And in this moment, Jesus is coming to us saying, I am God eternal, but at the same time, I am the Son of Man. At the same time, I am one of you. And I'm going to die in your place for you. That's what he's proclaiming through the illustration and through the ceremony of his baptism. Thirdly, and I believe possibly the most important one here, the baptism of Jesus records for all time the perfect embodiment of the triune God. The perfect embodiment of the triune God. We believe that God exists as three persons in one. This is one of those moments where God reveals himself in what we call the Trinity. The testimony directly from heaven of the Father's pleasure with the Son and the descending of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus, again, is a beautiful picture of just the Trinitarian nature of our God. It depicts the work of the Father, it depicts the work of the Son, and it depicts the work of the Holy Spirit in the salvation of those whom Jesus has come to save. So it's seeing, and it's really God kind of putting on display for us the opening ceremonies of what Jesus has come to accomplish for us. If you were to think about it in terms of, um, of like the Olympics, all right? Like the Olympics begin with a ceremony where it is presenting the people who are at play, who are going to be working through the, the different games and whatnot. It's putting them on display to ultimately show uh, what their position is, who they belong to, and what they're going to be executing, and ultimately what they want to accomplish in victory. And this moment at Jesus' baptism is the opening ceremonies for the ministry of Jesus to put on display exactly what the Father is establishing and calling for and designing from eternity past, the work of the Son and what He's come to execute through His life, His His death, His burial, and His resurrection, and the Holy Spirit's involvement in descending upon and empowering the work of this ministry. And so we're seeing all aspects of the Trinity literally on display in human history for the work of redemption for us. And we're just standing off to the side, okay? We're, we're standing off to the side, kind of going through our ritual, being baptized and seeing the picture of this, but getting to see a glimpse that God is literally executing the whole thing, the whole thing. And I want to show you a little bit of this so that you can see what I mean. When it comes to the Father and the Father's plan, in redemption, the Father's plan with what Jesus has come to do. This is what it says in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. It said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is talking about the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He, still representing the Father, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved, that is, in Jesus The Father is present here at Jesus' baptism 
Because the Father has determined, has determined before the foundation of the world. You're like, what does that mean? Before creation, before there was anything in existence, when there was nothing, God determined. God chose. All right, like it's, I know these are stumbling block terms at times, especially when you get in debates with with other mini theologians um, at dinner tables or coffee tables or college dorm rooms or whatever you will. At the end of the day, regardless of how we decide to interpret these terms, let's just read the terms as God has inspired them. God has determined before the foundation of the world that He's going to adopt many sons and daughters to make them holy and blameless. As God is looking out at Jesus, He's saying, this has been my plan forever. That through Jesus, who is my son that I am well pleased with, through Him, I am going to be pleased with many sons and daughters. That I'm going to adopt because of the work that he is accomplishing through his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Everything that he accomplishes that I am pleased with. I'm going to give that to those that I choose. To those that I've thought about. To those that I love. In love, I've predestined to adopt sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. This is the Father's will is to save people through the work of His beautiful, wonderful, sacrificial Son, Jesus, that He is infinitely pleased with. And because we do experience that great exchange of the work of Jesus, as we see here, what is His role? The Son of God, Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came, He came, alright? So He left heaven, To come to earth. He left the comfort and presence of angels to enter into uh, the discomfort and presence of sinners. He's come to do one thing. To seek and to save the lost. I love the imagery there that He is coming to seek us. Like like if we're going back to the idea of the Father, he's, He's chosen, He's pursuing, He's coming to us. Jesus is embodying that as He is coming to seek out and save the lost. This is a rescue mission that Jesus is on. This is not a let me come and do some work and kind of just leave it out there and hopefully by happenstance like people will receive it and accept it. No, Jesus is actively pursuing those who are lost. He's seeking them so that the Father can adopt them as His sons and daughters. And then we have the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity is here to implement and empower the work of Jesus and the will of the Father. We see this in John 16, 7-8 where He says, Nevertheless, and this is Jesus speaking to His disciples, He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. So this is now, we're seeing the full representation of the work of the Trinity where God the Father has willed and has purposed and has planned from before the foundation of the world this entire process in which He's going to redeem sinners that broke and messed up everything. So He's got the plan 
and it's put into place and it's being executed by Jesus the Son who is coming to live the perfect life, to die the death, to be buried and to resurrect in three three days. And then the Holy Spirit is stepping into the scene and here's what he says. It is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. What the Holy Spirit is doing on our behalf is convicting us by giving us the understanding of the good news. That's the role of the Holy Spirit, is taking the will of the Father, taking the work of the Son, and helping us understand what God has done. So that in that moment, out of faith, believing and trusting in Jesus, we get saved. We get saved. So God in choosing and God in sending and and Jesus in coming and Jesus in pursuing and seeking us, the Holy Spirit is accompanying and empowering us to be able to believe, to be able to be saved, to be able to be forgiven. I mean, this is so much so that when it comes to boasting in salvation, there is nothing in us that we can boast of. There's nothing that we bring to the table and say, God, look at me and how awesome I was for you to be able to choose me and for you to be able to forgive me and for you to be able to save me and for you to be able to pursue me. No, no, no. It's the complete opposite. When we look at this great exchange, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Totally lost. Totally ununderstanding anything about His Word. Totally mishandling anything about creation and how that came about because we're suppressing the truth in our sin. Totally missing anything about Messiah because we think we can believe it and, and do it ourselves. We think we can earn our salvation. We're totally missing the whole boat because we're lost. And not only are we lost, we're dead in our trespasses. We're dead in our sins. Last time I checked, dead things don't do anything. We're dead. And the Holy Spirit is coming to convict. To bring awareness that the way we're doing things is not working and we need to repent, stop, see Jesus, trust Him. The Holy Spirit empowers this. We need a helper to revive the dead bodies to see Jesus. And all of this is on display here at the baptism of Jesus. We see the Trinity of God working. It really is an opening ceremony like no other. It's a collision of deity and humanity. It's the presentation of Jesus as the Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice that will actually satisfy the wrath of God towards our sin. It's the identification of Jesus with sinners. The Messiah is a man who is fully God and fully man and will one day offer himself up as a sacrifice where he will put to death, death, and bury it and send it away. And because God is satisfied in that, he resurrects to a new life, guaranteeing for us the same thing. The same thing. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, but we can be dead to those sins. That's the beauty of the life of Jesus, is that he puts that old self, and that's why we 
picture in baptism. He puts that old, dead self to death and buries it, seals it away, and then raises us in the Holy Spirit. And that is a seal in and of itself where we will never go back. We will never go back. When looking at that Ephesians 1 passage, I think there's something important that we see kind of on the backside of God's will. And it's in verse 7. This is what it says. In him, referring to now the beloved, Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood. It's the forgiveness of our trespasses. And it's all according to the riches of his grace, which he, the Father, has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What he's saying is this work of Jesus being baptized, picturing the, the presentation of him to the Lord, that he is the Lamb of God, that God is going to use as the ultimate sacrifice, that's going to provide that work of the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection, the whole gospel news. This is coming to fruition in the fullness of time so that as he goes back to what John said, or as Matthew said, it is fitting for him to fulfill all righteousness. This is Jesus fulfilling all righteousness in order to then reconcile things on heaven and on earth. To be able to actually marriage and bring back together the relationship between God and man. Like that's what the whole thing is about. It's about reconciling a relationship between God and us. God created us to experience Him, to enjoy Him forever. And our sin fractured that relationship. It broke that relationship. It separated that relationship. The whole purpose is to get us back in relationship with God. Back in union with Him. Back to where we are being identified with Him as image bearers. So that when we pull out our IDs and we hand it to somebody, it is, I am in Jesus. I am in Christ. I am in God. I am united with Him. I abide in Him. He abides in me. We are, we are one. That is what this is all about. And this is what we actually see in Hebrews 9. I'm going to paraphrase this as we just kind of walk through it. Hebrews 9 talks about how Jesus' life, death, uh, burial and resurrection is literally fulfilling everything that they were trying to do in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. It's talking about how our whole design is to be in God's presence and to enjoy Him. So the way in which they try to do that in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant is they build a temple and God tells them to do this. They construct a temple and in the temple there's going to be a place where God resides. It's called the most holy place. It's where His presence dwells. And then just outside of that, separated by a veil, is the holy place. 
And that's where people would bring their, their lambs and their offerings and their tithes and their sacrifices. They would bring it there to the priest in order for the priest to perform the sacrifice and then take the blood into the most holy place and spread it on behalf of the people. And that's the way in which the people get some sort of interaction with God. Some sort of we're near His presence. We are longing to dwell with the Lord again, as David says. They're just trying to get there. And Jesus comes into the mix. And Jesus, through His life, His death, His burial, and His resurrection, completely does away with any need for a temple made with hands. Any need for something that God has to reside in separated from us because of our sin. Now that Jesus' sacrifice once and for all has satisfied the wrath of God, we are now free to access God unhindered. That's why when you see in the story of Jesus on the cross, when He breathes that last breath, And the wrath of God is satisfied. What happens in the temple? What happens? You can say, yeah, the curtain was torn. The veil was broken in half. Why? Because the wrath of God towards your sin is satisfied. There's no longer any reason for Him to be separated from you. Now you are being adopted because of the work of His Son, Jesus, for Him to look at you and say, I am well pleased. I am well pleased. The great exchange has occurred. You are no longer unrighteous. You are now considered righteous. And He's saying, come home. Come home. Like, you're with me now. We're in relationship. You can now enter into the most holy place because guess what? I've made you the most holy place. You are now the temple that I dwell. There's no sin. It's forgiven. And God does something that we can't do. He remembers it no more. We remember our sins. We know what we did this week. That's why we come in and we confess. We come in and confess so that we can be reminded that God forgives and that God remembers no more. It allows our consciences to not focus on our sin, but rather throw off whatever entangles us and focus on the goodness of His forgiveness towards us in His Son Jesus. And now we walk out feeling clean. We walk out unhindered. We walk out seeing our relationship with Jesus and has never been issued or been an issue because of His work that He's already done. So I don't come in trying to earn it and continue earning it and continue trying to work and figuring that out. No, I'm coming in reminding myself that He's already paid the price for my sin. And therefore, I'm able to walk with Him now. I'm able to be in relationship and abide in Jesus as He is abiding in me. That's why it says in Hebrews 10, 19-23, this, and I want to close with this as we enter into communion. Therefore, brothers, since we now have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. We have confidence to be in God's presence by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. They no longer needed a curtain of veil separating us. Jesus broke His body and He shed His blood, allowing us access 
through in order to get to God. And since we have a great priest now over the house of God, Jesus is our great priest. We don't need John the Baptist. We don't need any of the priests of Levi or Aaron. We don't need other people doing work on our behalf. Jesus has done all the work on our behalf and is our great high priest. Let us draw near, that is, to the presence of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts, and this is the imagery of the baptism here, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's why we do baptism. The reason why we do baptism is because it is identifying with what has occurred in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have been united with Jesus in His death, as Romans says, so that we can be united with Him in His life, in His resurrection. We identify with Him. Verse 23, Let us then hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. He is faithful to us. That's why it comes back to like 1 John 1, 9, where it says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why is God faithful to you when you confess your sins? Because... God has already dealt with your sins as he's placed them on Jesus at the cross. And the payment is full. Like it's not a, a payment with interest that God is like still working on the interest down the road. Like no, it, this is, it, we're, we're not just like paying the, the minimum payment each month. It's paid in full. And because it's paid in full, God looks at you and says, I have no reason to not forgive you. Jesus paid it. Jesus paid it. He is the Lamb of God. He was sacrificed on your behalf. This is the message that we get to proclaim not only do we receive it and experience it and be made new, but this is the message that we are proclaiming to those outside. To those who, who Jesus is seeking to save that are still lost. This is what gets us moving, if you will. This is what mobilizes us. This is what gets us seeing beyond ourselves to what's outside of us and saying, hey, I've got some good news for you. Like, are you, are you struggling with life? Are you realizing that every time you think you're getting what that next best thing is, and as soon as you get it, it dulls, and it no longer satisfies, and you want more, and you continue on? I've got good news for you. I've got good news why you're always struggling with your relationships. And, 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 and again, as sinners, we always shift blame. And so it's always someone else's problem until you get to know Jesus. And then you realize it was your problem the whole time. 
But we get to tell people, this will fix the issue. This will fix all your issues. It doesn't mean that your life is all of a sudden going to be easy. But your heart will be clean. And your sins will be forgiven. And you'll be able to get back into relationship with God that your actual existence is groaning for. That's why the world is dissatisfied. Honestly, at, at the end of the day, like you're never going to meet someone who doesn't know Jesus and them say, I have everything I could ever imagine. Because as you start to piece into that, you'll get to, well, no, I really could use some more money. Or I really could use better relationships. Or if so-and-so just did this. Or if I just experienced this. You're always going to see lacking. Because creation was never meant to provide for us what the Creator actually provides for us. Our own satisfaction. The only way we receive satisfaction is enjoying God forever. That satisfies. And this good news is what provides that for people. It provides that for people. It's like one of our son's favorite songs, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, Rolling Stones. They sing it all the time, thanks to Grandpa. <laughs> the world can't get any satisfaction until they know Jesus. And Him being on display at His baptism is the beginning of this ministry of Jesus executing everything that we need to come home. To come home. I want you to go ahead and stand. If you do not have the elements at the back table, please go back and grab them for communion. Again, Jesus' baptism, it leads to our ultimate baptism. It fulfills all righteousness. And it brings us home to our Father. It brings us home to our Father. I want to read this passage again. With his body being broken and his blood being shed. I want you to keep that imagery in mind of what he accomplished therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh his body broken and his blood shed that we might have confidence to come into the presence of God. Confidence. And Keller was the one who said, the only person who dares wake a king at 3 a.m. is a child. That's us. With our Father who adopts us. We have confidence to enter into His presence because of His Son Jesus breaking his body and shedding his blood for the removal of your sins 
and to forgive you and to make you righteous, to give you his righteousness so that we get to come home. We get to come home. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your will to redeem us. That before the foundation of the world, you had a plan. You had a plan to adopt us and bring us home. We thank you, Father, for your love. We thank Jesus that it's through his ultimate sacrifice depicted in his baptism of his own death and burial and resurrection that he has satisfied your wrath in absorbing our sins upon himself and becoming sin. He's identified with us so that we can be identified with him. Thank you, Jesus, for your baptism. And thank you for your work in living the life that we could not live, dying the death that we deserved, and being raised to a new life that you give to us as well. In Spirit of God, we thank you for the conviction that you bring to our hearts and minds, that you point us to the work of Jesus and that you empower us to believe in him, to know him, and to treasure him above all things. Holy Spirit, we thank you. We thank you. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Let's remember together now the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood as we continue on in worship. Thank you for listening to a sermon from The District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at